you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we are at the start of 2023 doing a, uh, a sermon just in the Beatitudes, sort of a, a way to start off the year with some of, uh, some of Jesus' most memorable teachings and most important teachings. And I think what has been most important to me, it's one of those things that I, I'm, I'm 99% sure that the last time I went through the Beatitudes, I was mindful of it, but you just kind of forget that the Beatitudes are meant to be connected. There's a kind of flow to the list. There are lists in the Bible where I don't think there's anything especially notable about the order, but I think this one is not one of those. I think this list of Beatitudes, of blessings, in fact, we are meant to discern some important things from the order. In fact, the order itself serves as the context for all of the Beatitudes together. And so just as the, here's how I want you to think about it, just as the Ten Commandments begin with our relationship to God, okay, that's Commandments 1 through 4, and then move to our relationship with our neighbors, that's Commandments 5 through 10, just as the the Ten Commandments do that, the first four deal with, if you like, our, our vertical relationship to God, and the latter six deal with our horizontal relationship to our neighbors, So the Beatitudes do something similar, not necessarily in perfect alignment with the numbering, but in terms of the sort of first priority followed by the second, the first great commandment followed by the second that's like it. Uh, And here's, here's what they do. The Beatitudes begin with spiritual poverty, okay? Eyes to see oneself rightly. If we can go on to that, do you have that? Oh, you thought I was going to read the text first like a good pastor should. Why don't I do that? <laughs> Sorry, bud. That was in, it was in my notes, and I just jumped right over it. Okay, let's try that again. <clears throat> Listen well. It's the only infallible part of the sermon. Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of God, and so again we say, thanks be to God. So with that in mind, Ten Commandments, similar to Beatitudes. We're going to start with the first one then, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes begin with a right side of yourself, your spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. I understand that there is nothing in me that is good. Nothing dwells in me that is good that is in my flesh, as Paul says, right? And then there's a movement, almost, almost a movement inward, though that, that may be an incomplete way of saying it. But once you realize your spiritual poverty, once you have a right sight of yourself, a right understanding of your spirit and your need for God, your need for grace, then it moves to the next one. The reaction is mourning, mourning over my pitiful condition. Blessed are those who mourn, right? And then once you understand your sinful condition, after that reaction, there's a result in attitude that is meekness. I understand that I am this big and smaller before God Almighty, and that actually gives me great courage before men, which is part of what meekness is. It's not a, it's not a brash, arrogant boastfulness, but it is a, what we might call a quiet confidence. It means you're difficult to offend. 
Uh, it means that you are, again, humble before God, bold, but though not arrogant, before men. Result in attitude then is meekness. Flowing from there, and I would, say, I would say all of this is, in a sense, flowing from verse 3, right side of yourself, but there is, again, a progression. Meekness, then, you have, there's a resultant desire, namely a resultant hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I, I know who I am, humble before this God. I know I, I know I can be bold before men, but I also know, again, going back to step one, I know my own spiritual poverty, and therefore I long. I long to be fed with righteousness itself. I long to be fed, as we said last Sunday, with more of Jesus. And then we come to the last bit, a resultant action. This is getting into that, if you like, commandments 6 through 10 in a, in a, in a manner of speaking. And that's where I think the rest of the Beatitudes are, talking about a resultant kind of action with my neighbors. And we begin with blessed are the merciful. So the idea is that, this, that this, this poverty of spirit and then this kind of chain reaction, if you like, it's not automatic in the sense that it has nothing to do with my will, but it is Holy Spirit wrought, Holy Spirit guided the whole way through. And so if it is a reality that if, if my insides are transformed and reformed by the grace and kindness of God, it will begin to express itself, though rather imperfectly, on my outsides. And so a right understanding of God and self before God will cultivate mercy in the heart. So let's talk about mercy. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they shall receive mercy. So what is mercy? Well, I'm going to begin with a, a definition for you. Mercy is being concerned about and moved by the needs and miseries of my neighbor. Now, when I say moved by, I mean moved to action, not just moved emotionally. Moved emotionally is covered in concerned, okay? Um, one of the best things I've ever heard about this, if, if convicting, uh, I think it was, oh, I think it might have been a Salvation Army advertisement where they said, you know, there are plenty of people in the world who want to do a lot of good. They see a problem, they feel, they feel the depth of the problem, and they almost do something about it. And then the sort of closing line of the commercial was, almost doing something is doing nothing. I, thought, I mean, that, that stuck with me for a long time. Almost doing something is doing nothing. So biblical mercy, Christian mercy, is being both concerned about and moved to action by the needs and miseries of my neighbor. And so there's a difference then, many of you know, between mercy and grace. Some have defined mercy and grace like this. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting much better than you deserve. So if you, let's just use this, this one. If, let's say you committed some sort of crime. Uh, mercy would be not getting punished. Grace would be the judge giving you cab fare to get you home after that, right? So that's, I mean, it's a rough analogy. And that's, that's, that's a pretty good starting point to, to get handles on mercy and grace. But the way those words function, especially in the New Testament, I would say that, that those definitions are insufficient. They're great for distinguishing the actions of a judge in a courtroom like I just did. But a better construct, I think, would be mercy deals with pain, uh, misery, distress. Grace deals with sin and guilt. Okay? So I, I would say that's, that adds a different dimension to it that I think might be helpful to us this morning. Mercy is dealing with pain, misery, distress. 
and, and relieving it, of course. Grace deals with sin and guilt. And you can see, many of you are already thinking, aren't those, isn't that kind of, you get some interconnectedness? Yeah, yeah. The, the distinction is just sort of for our purposes as we talk about these things. So grace is for my guilt. Mercy is for my misery. That may be a good way to remember it. Grace is for my guilt. Mercy is for my misery. Grace is what sinful people need. Mercy is what hurting people need. And often they go together. Now, the Greek word for mercy means, um, obviously, it can be translated mercy. It can also mean pity or compassion. And when we use the word pity, we don't mean condescending pity, okay? Like feeling sorry for someone because they're so terrible and pathetic and you're so much better. Not the, the actual genuine Christian sense of pity, which is being moved by somebody else's hurt, okay? The sense of the word is to have a concern about the needs and miseries of my neighbor to be moved by them. And as best I can, and there's not always a best I can, but as best I know how to do something about them. Or perhaps the best way I can put it is the way D. Martin, Lloyd jo- D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, mercy is pity plus action. A real concise, nice way to, to understand what mercy is. And some of you might be thinking of the book of James right now, which talks about not only kind of knowing the good, but doing it. Not only just saying, God bless you, be warmed, but figuring out a way for your neighbor to be warmed. All right? For some people, by the way, mercy and being merciful is easy. Okay? And I actually think for a lot of the Beatitudes, uh, if, we, if we kind of surveyed the congregation as best you knew your understanding of your own gifts, a lot of these, there might be one that kind of sings out to you. You're like, well, yeah, that's, uh, of course, why wouldn't you be? That's, and it, it comes rather easy to you to, to act this way, to, to feel this way, to live out this particular, if I can put it this way, this particular beatitude or the virtue contained within. What I mean is some of you are just naturally merciful. You're really good at it. You have a natural bent in your spirit towards deep compassion and care for hurting people. You are moved. You are moved by their trials and their pains. It's almost like a kind of of empathy where you almost hate it because you're hurting if they're hurting, and there's really no way for you to shut that off. And you want to do everything you can to bring speedy relief to hurting people. And if you're honest, you can't fathom how everybody else isn't just like you. How everybody else isn't just as deeply moved and concerned as you are all the time. And, you know, maybe maybe it's because they're not real Christians, right? That'd be the worst direction to go with that. There's always a temptation with the peculiar gifts that God gives to you with the peculiar ways that God has shaped you to, to not look at those things and just kind of, in a way, pridefully wonder why isn't everybody like this? Some of you are naturally gifted for evangelism or discipleship. And you wonder, why is everybody not as excited about doing this all the time as I am? And your temptation, again, will be to wonder if they're real Christians. Or perhaps you're really good at just plainly and clearly communicating truth. Not in a harsh or cruel way or unwise way, but in just a very direct and clear way. You, you speak clearly, you say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you just can't wrap your head around why some people can't get to the point when they talk, for heaven's sakes. So when we talk about mercy, I want to 
to, again, put this definition before you. Mercy is being concerned about and moved by the needs and miseries of my neighbor. Understanding that for some of us, this is going to feel very natural, and for some of us, you're going to have to fight for it. For some of you, this comes naturally and easily, and your challenge, by the way, is going to be not to get overwhelmed by the needs of your neighbors. C.S. Lewis talked about how some people say they, they can't believe in God because of all the collective misery and suffering in the world. And C.S. Lewis goes, well, that's, you know, there is a lot of misery and suffering, but if you were to take all the collective misery in the world and put it in a gigantic bottle, has anybody ever felt that? Has anybody ever carried that? No. Right? What, what we carry is, is that much of the bottle that we've been given to carry. So this, this concept of like the collective misery and suffering, nobody's bearing that, or at least, you, you naturally merciful people, at least nobody should. Okay? And so, uh, I think generally speaking, by the way, uh, women tend to be better at this than men. They tend to feel the hurts of others more naturally and more deeply. It's not that men are merciless. We just tend to be more measured in the distribution. As things go, there are exceptions on uh, in the distribution. So let's, let's try and get at the verse a bit more, though, because Jesus says that the merciful are blessed. And for the Beatitudes, I always want us to be investigating, like, why the blessing and from where does it come? So why are the merciful blessed? That's kind of the next point in our sermon. Why, why are the merciful blessed? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. The answer is, for they shall receive mercy, right? Don't try to be smarter than the text. Why are the merciful blessed? Because they're the ones receiving mercy, before we talk about what that means, I want to start by saying our flesh does not assume that the merciful should expect to be blessed. Just in terms of our flesh and our worldly reasoning, that's not obvious. There is an impulse in our flesh that goes something like this. Weary are the merciful, for they never stop hurting. Or maybe they never have what they need. Right? Weary are the tired are the merciful. It's like if you think of, of an overly merciful person, perhaps you think of that awful animal rescue commercial with the Sarah McLaughlin song in the background. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like the, the images of the puppies and there's the, the emo Sarah McLaughlin song going in the background. And the slideshow is progressing of the most like sad and pathetic little animals you've ever seen in your life. And then the voiceover invites you to give to the ASPCA or whatever it is. Right, yeah, you have to, or, or mute it or something, right, yeah, turn it off probably. And there's something in me, maybe it's in some of you too, where your sort of mental defenses go up because you perceive you're being manipulated, right? And here's a hard reality. You really do only have a certain amount of resources and emotions, and we might include that in the resources, to give to your neighbors, and you do need to be sensible about that. I wish it was that when you, just, when you became a Christian, oh man, you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and that means you are just filled with inexhaustible resources of energy and strength all the time to minister to all the hurting and feed all the needy and win all the wayward and prodigals to do everything for everyone. But you don't, and you can't. You need a church for that. You need a church for that. And even then, Jesus promises the poor you will always have with you, right? So that kind of shapes the way we distribute our energy, not with hopelessness, with confidence, but with a measured sense of wisdom and understanding 
Many and sad are the tales of Christian men and women who have poured themselves out for the needy and neglected their own families, their own husbands or wives, their own children for the sake of the ministry, you know. The Apostle Paul himself was a man who, who, who was spent for the gospel, and yet he's the one telling Timothy, if a man doesn't care for his own family, he's rejected the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Well, all right. So, so what is our motivation then in showing mercy? Our motivation is Jesus' promise. The promise of receiving mercy. Let's talk about that for a minute. What it is not, what that's not saying, it is not saying blessed are those who engage themselves in acts of mercy for they will earn their salvation. Okay? It would be a bit easy, maybe, to read that into the text. The only problem is, not only is it out of accord with the entirety of the rest of the Bible, it's also out of accord with Jesus' own teachings elsewhere, and also it's out of accord with the rest of the Beatitudes. It would be very easy to read this text as saying, merciful people, I mean, if you're generous and kind to the hurting, then your sins are forgiven. I want to condemn that in the strongest of terms because salvation is never earned. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And there have been more than a few, let's say, activist theologians in history who have tried to squeeze works righteousness out of this verse. They've tried to say that what Jesus is saying here is if you're kind enough and generous enough and gentle enough and compassionate enough, then you're a child of God no matter what you believe. But you have to keep in mind that Matthew 5, 7, and I'd ask you to follow me closely here, is the seventh verse in Matthew chapter 5. The mercy is the lived out work that comes after poverty of spirit, comes after mourning over sin and so on. Part of the trouble, I think, is this pesky word receive, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay. Or if you have another translation, you might have obtain, which I think is even more confusing. So I'm going to tell you something that might shock you a little. The word obtain, or the word receive, or the word get, or any other word you might put in there is actually not there in Greek. I am not attending to shake your confidence in your English translation. Your English translation is fine. But what you have here in Greek is the word mercy in a verbal form. It is a future passive verb. In other words, the verse is literally, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be mercied. But that doesn't really work in English. Right? It just sounds funny. Be mercied. Except mercy isn't a word. I mean, mercy isn't a word in English. So the closest English can get to a future passive is "they shall receive mercy." That's how English future passive works here. So what does it mean? Well, I think we can get a sense of what it means by remembering the parable of the unforgiving servant. Okay, in Matthew 18, and basically in summary, there's there's a king who who settles accounts with his servants. He forgives one of his servants a ridiculous amount of money. The the amount given to us in that text might as well be a kajillion bajillion dollars. And then the servant goes out and finds another fellow servant who owes him something like 50 bucks. And he harasses that guy and is harsh with him and ends up having him thrown in prison until he can pay off the debt. And when the king hears of it, he summons him and says, you wicked servant, 
I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy, there it is, on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. You see, the king assumes that if you've been forgiven that much, you ought to love much. You ought to be forgiving. You ought to be merciful. One who has been mercied ought to be merciful. And Jesus here in this beatitude has that reverse. Rather than saying, blessed are the ones who have received mercy, for they shall be merciful, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be mercied. So what is Jesus saying here? Quite simply that mercy, the mercy of God, is a gift for the merciful, and he's the one that makes them merciful. Do you remember the order of the Beatitudes? He's the one that has worked this in them through his Holy Spirit by causing them to realize poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, and so on. God creates, in other words, for his people, for their good, a kind of feedback loop where his mercy transforms our hearts, and so therefore we seek to be merciful to others. We seek to have our hearts moved by the hurts of others. We seek to extend mercy to those who need it. And by this work of the Spirit, we assume an open posture to the needy rather than a suspicious posture. Right? So how do, we, how do we do that then? How do we pursue mercy today? And be humble. Amen. It starts with humility. It starts with that. So that's the poverty of spirit. That's the mourning over sin. Why don't you put the next one up for me? Here's my attempt at a long, wordy definition. I'm sorry, but this was kind of, when taking aim, the best shot I could give. We pursue mercy today by guarding ourselves against coldness to our neighbor and by cultivating for the sake of our neighbor concern, compassion, and a willingness to hurt for the hurting. You can leave that up for a minute. What I want you to notice is that where this begins and this is part of meekness, by the way. Mourning over sin and meekness is preaching to yourself, my heart is not as, as turned toward mercy as it ought to be. That's the, that's the cultivating for the sake of our neighbor, concern, compassion, and a willingness to hurt. The thing about hurting is that it hurts. That's what you came for today, right? That brilliant insight. The thing about hurting is it, is it hurts. That's why we avoid it. I think that Coldness in our hearts is, I'm going to talk about a secondary threat, but I think it's the biggest threat to mercy is coldness in our hearts. Left to ourselves, we prefer to insulate our hearts against the pains and the troubles of our neighbors. And I think that's just, that's a reality of being in a sinful world that you and I have to come back to frequently. I don't know if you notice, but it shows up frequently in our corporate confessions of sin. Just basically like, Lord, my heart's been cold to the needs of my neighbor. Help me. Okay? Your pastor struggles, struggles there. That's why I put it in the confession. <laughs> That's why I put it in the confession of sin. I need it. I assume you need it too. Deeply hurting people, though, are a threat to my peace and quiet. <laughs> right? <laughs> For lots of reasons. One is that hurting people will require a lot of mercy and patience and work. And so one of the temptations you and I face a lot is to make our hearts cold. This can happen just in terms of dealing with neighbors, dealing with strangers. It also happens in homes, right? If you've been married a long time, your temptation is going to be to cultivate coldness of heart 
to the the pains and difficulties of your husband or your wife. To cultivate a coldness in your heart. You know why? Because you're tired of it. So you gotta, you got to bring that. That's, that's, that's the absence of mercy in your heart. You have to call that what, is it, what it is. It's a sin, and you have to bring it to God. You have to confess it, and you have to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. People who have suffered a long time under hard afflictions know a thing or two about this. That's if, if you have some difficulty or tragedy hit your life, you will get a lot of mercy after the initial hit. But a few weeks or a few months later, it it tends to be that mercy starts to dry up. If you hurt for too long, if you're sick for too long, if you're grieving for too long, if you're poor for too long, it just tends to be that mercy runs out. People who have suffered from chronic illness will tell you this, that unfortunately God forgive us in Christian circles, we, we, you have a person suffering from long-time chronic pain. And the response of some Christian communities can be, well, get ready then, because God's going to heal you. <laughs> and I know we don't always mean this. We don't ever mean it, actually. But God's going to heal you, so then we don't have to tolerate your misery anymore. Because that's really hard. God's going to heal you. And that lasts, that enthusiasm lasts for about six months. But what if the healing doesn't come? Well, then it gets really awkward and uncomfortable, especially if you made them a bunch of promises about what God was going to do and how he was going to do it and when. So, so you, what do you do? You start avoiding that hurting person. You see the wheelchair enter the room and you start looking for the exit. Because you can't bear the reminder that you broke the third commandment and spoke for God when he didn't speak. But cultivated coldness is a real threat to Christian mercy. So beware of it in your own heart. It probably feels like strength, but it's actually, according according to the Scripture, it's a real danger and a threat to your soul. We have to take this seriously because, listen, there's actually a biblical connection between the between coldness of spirit and the curses of God. Listen, listen to David's words against the wicked men who were opposing him in Psalm 109. Listen to this. Let's see. Do I have it? Is it up there or no? Okay, I'm sorry. I must have forgot to put that one in there. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. So I'm going to go to Psalm 109, beginning at verse 6. And So just listen to this. David is speaking of wicked men. Oh, well done. Uh, beginning in verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him, let an accuser stand at his right hand. So, so putting God's curse on the wicked man. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. Let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Whoa. May his children wander around and beg seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May his creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity, that is the sin, of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. Let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. So I ask you, pause there for a minute. What is it that has drawn that kind of ire and wrath and promise of woe from David? 
Look at verse, uh, sorry, I lost my place. Verse 16. For he did not remember to show kindness. The word can also be translated mercy. But pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. You see that the worst curses imaginable, particularly in the ancient world, of not having a lineage, not having generations, and so on, and lots of other things, lots of other unpleasant things, are reserved for the one who doesn't know mercy. Right? And so we have to take this seriously. Cultivated coldness is not wisdom. It is a curse, and it brings calamity. So let it not be said of us. There's also a kind of false mercy uh, that goes by a couple of different names. Some have called it toxic compassion. Some have called it toxic empathy. I told you I was going to give you two. The big one, I think, is coldness. I think this is a secondary one that you also have to be aware of. Coldness is, as far as I can tell, the bigger threat biblically. But there's also this, this secondary one that I might call uh, a false mercy or, or a kind of toxic compassion or empathy. That is, it's mercy that has no boundaries at all. It's always pity in every direction for every person, never, ever, ever calling anyone to maturity or to strength or to responsibility. It turns all sins into accidents that happen to victims, okay? And, and it's, that, that can be just as, just as deadly. Uh, in those cases, we need to be reminded that our merciful God, okay, our God who is full of mercy was not afraid to use his prophets to call a hurting and traumatized Israel to repentance. Okay? Their cities were ransacked. Their neighbors were slaughtered. They were shocked. They were shell-shocked and hauled off into exile. And God, through his prophets, has the audacity to say, repent of your sins. Okay? So we must, with the help of God's word and spirit, cultivate hearts that know how to be merciful and also, a, a quality of mercy that doesn't allow people to wallow in a state of, of victimhood perpetually forever and ever. Amen. So, so then how can that kind of mercy flourish in our churches and we pray beyond our walls as well? I've got a few, few things that I want to talk with you about briefly, kind of just a few application points that we can think about together and keep thinking about for the next, I don't know, 35, 40 years or so. Ways that mercy can flourish. First of all, be looking for the mercy of God. This is why I started off our prayer time by asking about how has God been merciful to you. Be looking for where God has been active to be merciful to you. This will help your heart to be merciful to others. Think of this, uh, the, the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Now listen, this is harder than it sounds because within our own cultural moment, we've been trained to live our lives consuming and demanding more and to always be looking at how things might be better, you know, that's why I'm unhappy with how things are now, because they could be a lot better. So we, we look at the world and we say, man, this place sure is a mess. What is God doing? He must be asleep. How often do we say, it is kind of ridiculous that I am surrounded by blessings? Right? Amen. The more you study history, the more you realize that that abject poverty, I mean like dying of starvation, has been a normal baseline for most people, most places, most of history. And we live in a place where 
hey, overwhelming majority of people do not face that kind of abject like, I'm going to die. Poverty has been the normal for most of history, and we live in a time now where, <laughs> where for a majority, uh, the, the struggle that's killing us is overeating. Like, think about that for a second. That's insane in terms of the like, wide swath of history. But look for God's mercies. Look for God's mercies. Look for them. It takes some work sometimes to, to, to see outside the ways your, your, your spirit can get blinded. Look at God's mercies to you. Look at God's mercy to your neighbors. It's not yours, it's his. Rejoice anyway, right? That's a good way to fight covetousness. Look at God's mercy to your family, your friends. So that's one way. Be looking for God's mercy. Number two is by enablement of the diaconal ministry. Let me talk about that for a second. The office of the deacon is commissioned in the book of Acts, and it's also given qualifications elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Timothy 3 and, and then Titus as well, I believe. And what you discover when you learn some things about that office and about that work is that diaconal ministry was the primary New Testament mission plan to bless neighbors with the mercy of God. Mercy ministry is most fundamentally what it was about. In our circles today, our deacons also handle property and finances, but the New Testament office, in, in all its simple glory, was one of fundamentally making sure widows got fed. That was, that was the baseline starting point. Now, our deacons also handle something called um, the Benevolence Fund, or, or sometimes we've called it the Fellowship Fund as well, which is always something that if you want, you can designate offerings toward, and that's, that's money that, uh, that we try to give away. We, we start here with needs in our family, and we also help others, and, and that's got a system like just so you know, for example, I, Pastor Brian, cannot write checks from the Benevolence Fund. I don't, that's, that's a diaconal matter. I do not have the authority to write a check and sign it and, and distribute it. So a lot of times when we're meeting needs, I will pass that on to a deacon whose task it is to tend to those things. And so um, I lost my spot. Let's see. There are people in this congregation, by the way, yeah, who when I say all that about diaconal and mercy ministry, like it, it really makes your heart sing. It really resonates with you. But you don't, uh, so you have like a driving desire to exercise gifts of mercy but you don't want to bear the responsibilities of finances and property because you're too busy probably cooking a meal for a sick neighbor or washing dishes that aren't yours or giving a hand up to the guy who really needs help. In other words, you're, you're too busy being a deacon to be a deacon or giving somebody a ride to church. The session, by the way, your elders are working on a plan to, to build up a team of people within our congregation who are especially gifted for mercy so that we can extend that out to, to the needs of our people and beyond. And maybe that doesn't mean that you get ordained as a deacon and you got to show up for all the meetings and so on, but you, but you are, essentially, essentially we're trying to give uh, the, the, the diaconate longer arms, a, a longer reach, um, so that we can get a sense of where this gifting is in our church, even if maybe you, you're sensing like, yeah, that's, that's my gifting, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not qualified or ready to take on the responsibilities of ordination of the office of deacon, but I still have maybe these, these gifts of mercy where I want to help people and I want to be directed, like point me in the direction of the needs, 
and, and, and let me work. And so we're, we're working on a plan to, to do that because we're, we're recognizing that, that not every uh, manifestation of a gift of mercy in the congregation also is, is appropriate like for, for ordination in, in the diaconate. But, but the diaconate is meant to be the, the primary way that a lot of our mercy work gets done, okay? And so, uh, so that's number two. Number three, speak about the mercy of God, okay? Talk about the mercy of God. We have a fancy word for this. We call it evangelism, okay? Don't forget that the context of blessed are the merciful is a spiritual context. Therefore, it is likely that Jesus mainly had in mind spiritual mercy. The reason why I've spent lots of time talking about other kinds of mercy is because that's what the word means. Like that's, that's what the Greek word means. Mercy, compassion, feeling the hurts of the neighbor, etc. But mercy for the suffering and needs of others is part of this because that's the meaning of the word. But, but you should keep spiritual mercy in view. The mercy of extending the forgiveness of sins. In other words, evangelism. And then finally, identifying and meeting needs. Identifying and meeting needs, okay? Now, if you and I were to sit down over lunch after service today, let's say, and we tried to list out all the needs of our community, let's say just Alexandria and beyond, okay? I bet you we could make a really, really long list. Okay? Some of you are working on it right now. We could talk about false teaching and heresy in our city unaccountable prosperity gospel and word of faith teachers leading people astray, fatherlessness and violent crime, incompetent political leadership, ingratitude and hatred of authority, a growing number of foster children orphans, radical physical unhealth, foreign wars, growing concerns about them, racial animosity and hatred of neighbor, racial vainglory and prideful love of self, Widespread mental health affliction, rising costs and lowering wages, children robbed of their innocence and virtue, exchanging embodied virtue for life through a screen, the fact that the abortion fight is far from over, and in some ways it is only beginning. What's, what's encouraging in a way is that as I went through that list, I think almost every one of you has your own conviction about which one of those is the most important thing. Or some other things I didn't name. It's, it's the thing that we should be applying or else, you know, or else we're, like, we're, we're sinning against God. And this is an area, to be honest, where we as a church body, we as a local congregation here can do a lot of growing. Listen, because... And I mean this historically. I'm going to say for just my own estimation, my own gut call, is that for the last, let's say, 25 years, our church body has been really good at, be, at encouraging about 150 people to do 150 different things as it strikes them. We are not as good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying we are not as good, I don't think, or not as good yet, at focusing on a few things that we might dub really important as a body, and charging at those gates with unified strength. Okay? It's an area where I think we need to grow. And it's something that has been frequently on the minds and lips of your elders as we are asking God what those things are. And I would ask you to pray about that as well. As we figure out, again, this is why I started this sermon with uh, 
there's, there's a lot to be done, and, and we don't think we're going we're gonna to do it all, like in the, you know, in the next couple of years or whatever. But there may, be, there may be a few particular evils, a few particular manifestations of sin and brokenness in our neighborhoods and in the areas around us where we can bring light into the darkness. And so I would, I would invite you again to be in prayer over that as your elders are. And so as I, as I start, to, start to wrap up, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Remember the direction of the Beatitudes. It begins, it begins, it must begin with a recognition of the poverty of spirit. Okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From there, that provokes in your heart a mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin realize their smallness before God and are given grace upon grace to be courageous before men. That's meekness. Blessed are those then who hunger and thirst for righteousness because the more you grow, the more you realize your need. It's like driving, um, um, if, you're, if you're ever driving west in the evenings, right? And that sun hits your windshield and you didn't know how filthy your windshield was until you got in your car and started driving away. You're like, oh, this is gross, right? I can barely see. Yeah, and that's because the closer you get to the light, the better you can see the dirt, right? And so don't be discouraged by God's kindness in showing you all the dirt. That's often where he starts. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful then, for they shall receive mercy. And so, so it, it, it comes to me this morning to encourage your hearts once more not to take this verse as some kind of call to self-justification, trying to earn salvation, or even to be content with what you believe you've earned, but rather face off with this question, does the mercy of Jesus cause you too long to be merciful to others? Do you, in recognition of what you've been saved from, right? Think of, think of the old hymn, uh, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? For, oh my God, it found out me. And, and from there, is, is your heart not provoked to extend mercy to others? Understanding that, I mean, for goodness sake, everyone's kind of at a different place on, on kind of the road that God's put them. Sanctification, we believe, takes a whole lifetime. So maybe sometimes you gotta, sometimes you gotta work with where somebody is. And maybe sometimes, for the sake of your own soul, just say, Lord, help me to imagine what an almighty God can do with a repentant person in the next five years. Amen. Right? Amen. So, this is what God calls us to. To be first receivers of mercy that we might be made merciful. And then from there, to hear the promise, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so our Father, we ask for your help in this. I preach as a man who struggles with mercy to people who I presume mostly struggle with mercy. And so in this sense, Lord, give us that slowness to judge that is a fruit of the Spirit and a quickness to love and even, even to hurt for the hurting, which is hard to do. It's, it's a lot easier to sort of hermetically seal off our hearts so that we don't have to feel pain. Lord, replace that cowardice with courage. 
courage to feel the hurts. That we might be so moved in a way that honors and glorifies you and therefore our, our, our pity is given hands. Our, our mercy is given action. And so, Lord, let it be said of us. Let it be said of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.